a month ago, we thought we wouldn't be talking much about the coronavirus by this time of the summer, but that's not the case. The coronavirus continues to be the top story of Northeast Ohio and the rest of the nation. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. I hope you guys are figuring out some way to stay cool. Yep. I was out on the uh, paddleboard last night at sunset, and it was very busy on the lake. Is that a way to stay cool? I mean, you only stay cool if you fall off, right? No, I, I've, I've been doing cartwheels off of it. It's super fun. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's get going. Is Ohio's alarming coronavirus surge continuing? The numbers on this just keep rising, it seems, Jane Cahoon, and yesterday's numbers were somewhat distressing. We haven't hit a record, but they're still very high. Yeah, we had 1,277 new cases on Wednesday, and that was the fourth highest number of cases we've had during this pandemic. It was also the seventh day that we've had more than 1,000 cases, and that includes three from mid-April when we were doing all that prison testing and then another three days at the beginning of, of this month. So as as we've said before, the record is 1,380, which we hit on April 19th. So, But we did hit another record, that. right? Yes, we did reach another record for the, the, set, the what they call the seven-day rolling average, which kind of smooths things out. Um, this involves the daily cases. That figure is now at 1,045. Um, that's, wow. You know, and if you think about where that was a month ago, it was under 400. Yes. Yeah. And we, we've also got hospitalizations up 24% this month. Um, they, they were 720 on July 1st, and now they're 890. And that figure was 516 on June 15th. So. Is, this just, is this just a failure of public policy? I mean, we did everything right. Ohio was the national leader in shutting this down, stopping the spread. And now it feels like all of the, the gains we made are lost, that we're, we're in a full crisis again. Yeah, people are being careless, I think. We're up over 60,000 infections and nearly 3,000 deaths. And we're going to find out today, you know, if any more counties get into that red zone or if perhaps any of the red counties go into the purple zone, you know, which is where you're only supposed to go outside for essential services and supplies. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I know, but that all seems like such, such window dressing when the steps we took back in March and April stopped the virus. I mean, we, we were da- on a downward trajectory. Well, we're I, not doing that anymore. It's this is Laura Johnston. And I think, I mean, Ohio didn't look like New York or some other places that seemed overrun. And I feel like we did a lot of the work in March and April so that our hospitals could gear up, right? We got the PPE, we got the extra hospitals to have their extra space. And I, I'd like to know if we're using any of that now. I mean, maybe maybe DeWine will address that now that all of the extra kind of access we got is now being used. Because everybody knew there was going to be a surge. I don't think we knew it was going to be this big and this bad. Um, but, you know, the death rate has been down because so many younger people are getting it. Hey, Jane, one of the numbers that the governor often talked about, I forget, I think it was the R number, the, the oh, number the R not. Yeah, the, the number of people each infected person infects. And the goal there 
is to keep it under one. Have we had an update on that anytime recently? You no, know, that's a good question. I haven't heard about that in the last few days. I, I think it's on there on the website somewhere, but we'll, we'll get an update on that today. Yeah, we should do a piece of content describing how that that's going. If it were significant, I'm sure Rich Exner would have done something on it. He doesn't miss anything, but distressing numbers. And, and Thursday is actually a day where we seem to peak. So if we're going to break the record this week, today would seem to be the day that could be an ugly number come two o'clock. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did a member of the Cleveland Design Review Advisory Committee quit in protest? Chris Ranaski, I don't think most people even know what this long-named committee is, <laughs> but this is actually a very interesting controversy that has to do with Lake Erie. So what's going on here? Right. So as you said, a, a member of this Design Review Advisory Committee uh, resigned in protest this week after a city board gave approval to a house in North Collinwood over objections of many of the neighbors in that in that neighborhood who felt it was too tacky and garish for a kind of modest working class uh, neighborhood. So uh, Carol Foe, I believe is how her last name is pronounced, is she was a historical consultant and and she wrote in an email Monday to planning director Freddie Collier that she could no longer serve on a city department that, quote, engages in political favoritism and fails to uphold the protections of the zoning code for its citizens. And what the people in the neighborhood are sort of sort of upset about is this home is is basically what they deemed a McMansion. So it's and, and it's blocking what a pristine view of Lake Erie that has has remained unimpeded for many, many years. And and this couple, uh, Vincent and Suzanne DeGeorge, uh, bought the land in 2018 and have been building the house uh, pretty much ever since. And and what she's accusing them, uh, the planning commission of, is, is basically doing sort of some behind-the-scenes dealings to sort of get this the variances so that they could build this property, this house, uh, on this land when they previously couldn't. It, would, it required some exceptions. You know what I'm surprised about? There's a parallel in this case to one about a year ago in University Circle where somebody mm -hmm. wanted to build a big house, multi-story house in a neighborhood where the neighbors were dead set against it. Um, University Circle was in favor of it. But the councilman, Blaine Griffin, went to bat for the residents and got all sorts of concessions. So the residents basically won. But I was surprised by the absence in this story of any statements by the councilman. I'm pretty sure this is Mike Polensic's ward. He's never had any hesitance to speak up about issues of, of conflict. And I, I'm just, if all of the residents really were against this, I'm a little bit surprised their council person didn't get involved. What is the plan about this a little bit? I, he, he said, and I quote, I never saw a hearing where the board went against the wishes of the community. And um, he said that to Eric Heisig, uh, who wrote the story. And, you know, and, and he also noted that the property does have a, 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 an erosion problem. So, you know, building on it could also exacerbate that issue um, all right i missed that i missed yeah, that he, yeah, he, did he, he definitely talked about this and did he did he try to help the residents come to yeah, a yeah i believe he he i think he went to the the planning meetings i think he's i mean he's he he is clearly not pleased with this whole incident and and i think you know i it 
it, it's worth noting that this is becoming a problem in a lot of our like redeveloping neighborhoods. You have these these battles against the sort of the established people. You have it in Tremont. You have it in Ohio City. I, you know, as, as somebody who just moved out of Ohio City, I, you know, as I walk my dog around there, you you see these 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 signs that say like you you know th- this is not your community. And, and like, even in Bay Village, I see signs that say, like, our community is not your commodity. And, and so there's a lot of, I think, consternation between people who are established, who probably own their homes, and who are probably worried that all of this kind of redevelopment is going to really impact their taxes as, you know, as, as homes get reassessed and the values go up because of, of neighboring construction. So I, you know, th- this is, this is an issue all over our community and especially as, as, as Cleveland has, has really kind of allowed development to, to happen without any real sort of limitations. You know, they're, they're allowing these giant garish kind of uh, apartment buildings to just go up next to historic homes and stuff like that. And I get it. Like it's your, your city desperate for the real estate taxes and the real estate development. Well, and a lot of these, and a lot of these things are, you know, tax free. So, you know, they're, they're getting a a lot of tax benefits to, to build and they're trying to cram as much square footage on, on small pieces of property in the city as they can. And, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, and it's being done without, you know, it just seems like the city for, for a long time, did not have a lot of residential construction going on here. And, and when people saw cheap property and the ability to redevelop and, you know, people really took advantage of it and the city really was just felt probably happy to have people that were just building homes and apartments and condos and stuff like that. So I think it might be a good case study in examining why the, the sentiment of residents and university circle overcame the uh, planning commission, but, but failed here. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame finally cancel the Cleveland inductions scheduled for November? This is kind of the final straw of public performances that might have happened in Cleveland this year. The coronavirus has stopped pretty much all of them. Laura Johnston, what's the final word on the inductions? Yep. Uh, this is the first time an in-person induction has been canceled. Uh, the original date had been pushed back from May 2nd to November. Now it's off for good. Though the Rock Hall promises Cleveland's going to be the home of the induction in the fall of 2021. Of course, we assume that means you can have public gatherings. Instead of having a live concert, there's going to be um, an HBO special instead in November. And HBO was all already supposed to air the induction ceremony. Um, they never released who was supposed to be performing, but there was some news about some part, people from Nine Inch Nails. Um, the Doobie Brothers had planned to reunite. Diddy said he was going to be there to honor the notorious uh, B.I.G., the late uh, performer. So uh, it's kind of a letdown, but I don't think it was a surprise. No, it was looking to be a good show, but really nothing is nothing is happening in Cleveland or anywhere else this year. So kind of an expected decision just took a little while to make it. So maybe it's good that Pat Benatar didn't get in this year because then she'll have another shot. <laughs> That's, okay, it's this week in the theory. Why is the Ohio Supreme Court taking a look at a kindergartner who was bullied in Toledo? This sounds like a bit of a wonky case, Jane Cahoon, but it's actually pretty interesting. And it involves a kid that got stabbed in the face with a pencil. Do tell. 
Right. Uh, this is a case that's being watched statewide, and the Ohio Supreme Court heard arguments on it on Wednesday. This little girl started kindergarten early, and she kept getting teased, you know, being called a baby and so forth. And it eventually escalated to where one of the kids who was teasing her stabbed her in the face or slashed her in the face with a pencil. And the parents say that the school officials should be held liable. They shouldn't have their immunity uh, from from a lawsuit here because they were reckless and didn't do enough to protect this child. Now, the school officials say, you know, they repeatedly checked on this child and she actually said she was friends with this other kid and the other kid didn't have any previous violence issues and that, uh, you know, the, the, the child wasn't taken to the doctor after school. She went to a, a Girl Scout meeting. And so anyway, the, the arguments were, were really were really interesting and, and the court's going to decide whether whether this standard of recklessness was meant met and whether the school district should be held responsible. So normally governments and school districts and things, they're, they're immune from civil lawsuits. There's just a general immunity in the law. So you really have to be reckless in your decisions to, to lose that immunity. That's what's going on here. Right. They would have to meet this reckless standard and they also use the term tender years, which refers to the, you know, the child that it, previous court decisions required a heightened duty to protect someone in their tender years. It's interesting. It'll be, I mean, I, I think every school district in the state is probably afraid mm-hmm. of how this could go because it puts them very much in the crosshairs of any parent who becomes disgruntled about the treatment of their children. Right. My wife's a school school teacher, and I can tell you there are quite a few parents that feel that way. <laughs> so, right. so this could you have could very, definitely see both sides of this one. Yeah, and it has far-reaching implications. We'll have to see where it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do we know about the inmate who died this week in the Cuyahoga County Jail? Chris Ranowski, the county had had that series of deaths in 2018, where it was, what, eight in a year. And uh, then they had a period where they kind of got it under control. And we, we were under what had been the average of two a year. But this week we had the unfortunate, sad case of another inmate dying. Right. Um, so Michael Warmick, who was 52 years old, he died uh, in the jail on Wednesday. And the records that Adam Faris was able to find on him uh, listed his address as at, at the men's shelter at uh, 2100 Lakeside uh, in downtown Cleveland. And he and Warmick was booked into the jail on June 24th. Uh, on, let's see, two theft-related charges. Uh, one of them, I believe, uh, was a felony. And he, uh, a fellow inmate, uh, told a corrections officer about ten, a quarter after 10 that Warmick uh, was unresponsive and an ambulance took him to Metro Health where he was pronounced dead at about 11.50. So, and you're right, his his death was the first at the jail since the that big series of deaths that we had between 2018 and 2019, which resulted in nine people dying of a mix of, of mostly suicide and drug overdoses. Um, but, but it's been what about 15 months since the, the yeah, last it's year? been a while. And I think what's 
I think what's interesting here is that he was in jail on a very, on a pretty low bond. I mean, his bond was $5,000 and, you know, we were, he's a homeless guy. So he was never going to be able to post that bond, which raises all the questions we've always raised about what's the purpose of bail. Right. We've reported a great deal on the fact that the jail did a pretty good job of getting a lot of low level nonviolent offenders out of the jail to help avoid this pandemic that we're going through. And they managed to cut their their population down to like 900 inmates from about two from over 2000. And and that number is start starting to creep back up. So it's up to twelve hundred now. So I think the willingness of of judges to you know let people out is is starting to diminish a little bit as you know the the jail and and the prosecutors and everybody get all this credit for clearing it out but you know it's we were you know i think the broader hope by criminal justice reform folks was that once the the tidal wave of this coronavirus went back that that we would continue to keep the jail population low as a matter of public safety and and for the safety of the inmates who, you know, are in there. But, but, you know, that population number is starting to sort of, you know, tick back up a little bit. So So with this guy, we we don't know if he was on suicide watch or we don't know if there were were drugs right now. So we'll, you know, I I think the medical examiner or somebody from the county will tell us soon. Um, I think they're trying to, figure out what happened. I, you know, I mean, it could be any, I mean, it could be, it could be natural causes. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to imply that the jail has done anything wrong here yet because we just don't know, but the time will tell. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How is the Ohio lottery making ends meet during the coronavirus pandemic when so many people had stayed home and could not play Keno in bars? Lar Johnson, until this story came up, I had forgotten all about Kino, but I guess it's a pretty serious contributor to the lottery's bottom line. But since the bars were closed, people couldn't play it. But it's not all bad news, is it? It's really not bad news. And it's all thanks to scratch off tickets, actually. And we've all heard stories about people who are trying to keep their parents from going to buy their scratch off tickets at the convenience store during the pandemic, but people did. And uh, the Ohio Lottery Commission reported Wednesday that total sales from traditional lottery games closed out the fiscal year that ended June 30th, up $111 million from the previous year. So revenue from slot-like video machines at racinos were down nearly $80 million, but that was outweighed by the scratch off stuff. And so is this, is this evidence that people are just, they have to have their gambling fix? So they lose Keno, they lose the casinos, so scratch-off tickets are the, the next best thing. And it sounds like there are people that just have to do this. Well, I mean, there's a reason that you know gambling is considered an addiction, right? I mean, so I, I guess some people, this was what they were doing. Um, yeah, Keno is at the bars, and so some people might do it socially, but some people might really have um, kind of a, an addiction to it. And, and you no, know, Racinos did reopen now June 18th. So the, Rich Exner has reported that they're doing pretty well since then. Um, so we'll have to see. But yeah, the lottery. Yeah, I've, wanted to send a, I've wanted to send a reporter into the casino, see how they're doing, but I don't want to risk anybody getting sick. So I've been, been conflicted about that. You know, Jane Cahoon, we had raised questions early on in the uh, pandemic because 
they had not shut down lottery ticket sales. You know, when they closed down all of the non-essential businesses, the lottery kept coming up. Like, why? What? What is that about? How is that essential? <laughs> well, I think I think dollars drove it. They it was essential because they wanted the damn money, and the the sales of these tickets are kind of proof that it worked. They got the the revenue. So he never and really don't answered forget that goes toward education. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he, he never really answered that question directly. It was asked several times and it was always one of those non-answer answers. So so this is this is the answer. It's worth a lot of dough. So seek him the CLE. Why is the Ohio Historical Society trying to take over a golf course? And why is the Ohio Supreme Court interested? This is another Supreme Court case this week that I think is really interesting. Jane Cahoon, it's all about history. And and uh, I guess it's not serpent mounds, but it's something close. Yeah, th- this is really interesting. The Ohio Supreme Court the other day agreed to hear this case. So they're not going to hear oral arguments on it for a while. But what what it's about is that the the state's historical society, which is called the Ohio History Connection, they want to use eminent domain powers to to buy a lease from a, a golf course in Newark called the Mound Builders Country Club, which happens to be built on a series of ancient Native American earthworks. So the historical society had filed this lawsuit that had made its way through the courts and and. Uh, you know, as I said the other day, the Supreme Court agreed to hear it. So they, the society wants to designate this, what they call the Octagon Earthworks, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And they say they can't do that, you know, when there's like a, a golf course. When oh, people oh. are playing golf on top <laughs> of the earthworks. Right. Yeah. These, the earthworks were built by the Hopewell culture sometime between 100 BC and 500 AD. So they, you know, they're very concerned about this. And, and the, there's a little intrigue here where apparently the historical society offered this country club $800,000 to break its 22 year old lease, which runs through like, you know, well, it runs a long time. Anyway, that, the, that was the value of the lease determined by an appraisal. However, there was another appraisal that the historical society got that was like, 1.75 million and and the country club said they they weren't told about that one and so they filed this counterclaim and they're accusing the historical society of not negotiating in in good faith and um and they they claim that that this property could be preserved and still designated this world heritage site without breaking the lease i'm not sure while while people are still playing golf on it That's fascinating. So the this lower is, courts have deci- have sided with the historical society, by the way, on this issue. So it will be interesting to see how the Supreme Court views it. Sorry, Chris Warnowski. Oh no, no, this is Chris Warnowski. I have can can think of no more American story than playing golf. On, <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're looking for a place to move all these Columbus statues, put them there. Like, <laughs> turn it into like a mini golf course where you have to play around Columbus and <laughs> make up a windmill. Lord. All right. All right. Good line. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is Cuyahoga County breaking with long practice and keeping secret the name of the deputy sheriff suspecting of shooting a beanbag at a man that blinded him in one eye? Chris Ronowski, traditionally, when 
deputy sheriffs get into trouble, we know who they are. And this time they're keeping this secret. Right. So if it, just to give a quick refresher on this, uh, during the May 30th demonstrations of the death of George Floyd in downtown Cleveland, a young man from Sandusky uh, was shot in the face with a beanbag round from a shotgun, and he's now missing his left eye. It's been a few weeks since that happened, and we still haven't really had any sense of uh, anyone being punished for this because, you know, if you look at the video of this, he's clearly not doing anything wrong. You know, he, he walked up to the building to take a picture and was walking away and, and took a shot like right in the face. And yeah, I mean, he's borderline skipping. I mean, this is the most non-aggressive person probably at the protest. He's just walking down the street and he gets his eye taken out. I mean, it's a horrifying video. So the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office uh, announced back on June 24th that it had asked the Ohio Attorney General's Bureau of Criminal Investigation to help in their internal investigation into this. And and really, in a break from past practices, they have not confirmed the names of anyone who is under investigation in this, saying there and the county is citing that the fact that BCI is involved in the investigation is the reason that they don't have to tell the public this information. So, um, which makes so, no sense whatsoever. No. And but, you know, it's it's we no, no, I mean, put it in perspective, right. whether it's BCI, the sheriff's office, the attorney general. Whoever is doing the investigation is still a criminal investigation. They've had criminal and civil investigations of past bad behavior. They've given us the names. This is a dodge, and it's it's kind of a hallmark of the Buddhist administration to try to be secretive every chance they get. And it's just, it's ridiculous. Now, Corey Schaefer, the reporter, he knows who it is. He just doesn't have it in such a way he can report it. The guy's on leave. Mm-hmm. But but this is, you know, let's put the responsibility where it belongs. Armin Budish is the butch of the sheriff. Armin Budish's administration is keeping it secret, this this very important public interest case. Right. And and to give an, a sense of why it's important to the public, you know, I a this person is on a taxpayer payroll, you know, so. You know, that to me makes it immediately a matter of public record. But B, you know, you also want the ability to scrutinize their their, you know, past behavior. You know, their their, you know, do they have a history of of stuff like this and and whatnot? And, you know, and that's, you know, usually something that we do in these cases. But, you know, they've they've sort of put up the wall. I mean, look, it goes beyond that, though. Look, there there need this. Something yeah. went wrong on May 30th. That mm-hmm. The way that went from peaceful protest to not peaceful protest th- th- was bad. Mm-hmm. And so we need to understand everything about it, because if it was publicly employed people who caused it, then that needs to be corrected. And you cannot correct it unless you know what happened. I mean, it's like what Corey Schaefer said. You're, it's like re- re- rehabilitating your kitchen with the lights off. You just can't do it. Right. So. This is one element. The other secret element that they're pulling on us right now is refusing to disclose what exactly they fired upon all those protesters. How many beanbags? How many rubber bullets? How many gallons of pepper spray? What, you know, what was used by whom? They've asked, and apparently they're getting approval, for $41,000 of restocking without ever having anybody question, wait, 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 wait. Why? I mean, Black Lives Matter came out with a statement yesterday that 
said, we're condemning the restocking of the sheriff's office with this stuff. There's no public reckoning for what happened. And the Armin Budish administration, with the complicity of Dan Brady and the rest of the county council, are keeping the whole thing secret. And it's just not acceptable. We as a, as a society, the taxpayers deserve to know how the people they're employing have behaved. Right. And and I think, you Anybody know, want to debate me on that? <laughs> I think we're all no kind of in agreement here. <laughs> For once, I think you're right, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're listening to this week in the CLE. All right. That does it. Uh, Jane, <laughs> I think. I think the heat has brought a, a new element out of out of you. Good lines. New level of crankiness. <laughs> yeah, yes. All right. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. 